And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer right here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf, and joining me on the phone today is Dr. Kevin Sherritt. Good to be with you, Dan. Well, Kevin, it's great to have you here. Um, Our listeners may not realize this, but I think I've known you since about, oh, maybe 1988 or thereabouts. Uh, We had both worked in the corporate world together at the same company, and I, I met you in the halls of IBM years ago. That's right. Um, Fortuitous meeting. <laughs> indeed it was. <laughs> yeah. And I was, um, um, we, we developed a friendship, and, and the Lord uh, blessed that fr- friendship, and uh, I learned very much from you, and I appreciate your um, ability to help dissect um, the Scriptures and help us understand the Scriptures. You've always had the gift of teaching, it seems, and finally God called you to the pastorate. Um, today we're going to be talking about a subject here which is of great interest, I think, to listeners. It, it really relates to um, the relationship that God has with his people, and there's kind of a buzzword associated with that, and that is uh, covenant or covenant theology. What we'll do is try to um, unpack that word. Here's the question, I guess. What does it mean when people talk about covenant theology or the covenant? It comes from the Bible? What, what's that all about? Well, the word really points to the way God relates to us ultimately in Jesus Christ. So when we think covenant, we should think uh, personal relationship, but we also should think that it's that the way the tri-personal God relates to us is orderly and structured. So I like to say that the covenant has to do with the order or the structure or the nature of the relationship that God has with us. It, it essentially sets out the the terms and the ground of the relationship. And so in that sense, uh, ultimately the substance and heart of the covenant is Jesus Christ himself. Mm-hmm. But the point is that when God relates to his people, he does so in a way that's um, orderly, and it unfolds historically in a way that's organic and, and uh, interconnected. So it's not mm-hmm. like um, a sort of um, amorphous, uh, 1960s sort of relationship that's open and untethered and, and nondescript. Mm-hmm. So covenant helps us get our hands around the nature of the way God relates to us and we relate to him. We've heard of covenant as we read through particularly the Old Testament. Um, it seems like the word is used quite often. Can you think of an example in the Old Testament that might help us get thinking through the covenant? Well, I guess the place to start, as far as the actual, you know, use of the word itself, is uh, God calls the arrangement with Noah after the flood, the establishment of his covenant. Um, and so there are many covenants in the Bible. There are often covenants where the word itself is not expressly used, but the thing is present. In fact, theologians would see a covenant with Adam in the garden in that there were stipulations, and if he broke those stipulations, there were sanctions. Okay. Uh, if he kept the stipulations, there were blessings. So a, a covenant, there's a, there's a covenant with Adam, Adam breaks that covenant, and then God immediately makes the promise and establishes a new covenant, saying that he is going to send a Redeemer to crush the serpent's head. And uh, that promise unfolds, and as it unfolds in history, God makes additional covenants. He makes a covenant with Noah, to preserve the created order, and then especially he makes a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. 
17 and gives Abraham a covenant sign. And so the, these covenants are all serving the same purpose. They're pushing the history of God's redemptive plan forward from Noah to Abraham. Then, of course, we all know that there's a covenant with Moses, the Mosaic covenant, and then there's a covenant of kingship with David. And all of these covenants point forward to the new covenant in Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. We'll talk a little bit about Abraham, if you don't mind. Seems that that is a, a key to our own relationship in this day. Um, That's right. How is it that that covenant or relationship extends even to us today? Well, it becomes clear in Scripture there for the first time that the covenant is a redemptive reality where God is going to sovereignly provide for his people redemption and establish them in relationship with him. You see that in Genesis 15 where the animals are cut in half, right? Mm-hmm. And, and normally in ancient Near Eastern covenants, the two parties to the covenant would pass through the halved animals. And they'd be saying, may it be done to me, may it, be, may it come down upon my head as it has to these animals if I don't uphold my end of the covenant. But in that scene in Genesis 15, when God cuts the covenant with Abraham, God passes through twice. Mm. Once, as a, once as a smoking oven and once as a burning torch. This is God's way of saying to Abraham, I am going to bear the curses of the covenant on my own head. I'm going to uphold the covenant. And so it's a beautiful picture of the gospel, mm. what God ultimately does for us in Jesus Christ. On top of that, you know, when we get to the new covenant, Paul basically says that believers in Christ Christ himself being the seed of Abraham, believers in Christ are sons, are also the seed of Abraham. We are the the Abrahamic people in Jesus Christ. So the new covenant can be viewed uniquely, you see this in Galatians 3, for example, as the fulfillment, the end game, if you will, of the Abrahamic covenant. So the Abrahamic covenant is not abolished, but it's fulfilled and established in the new and everlasting covenant that God makes with Jesus Christ. Hebrews mm-hmm. 6 makes the same point, you know, that, that God made this promise to Abraham, that he swore by himself, and, uh, and that this uh, covenant promise comes to fruition in Jesus Christ, who we have as, you know, the anchor of our souls, who is our mm-hmm. great high priest, in Hebrews 6, 13 and following. So, uh, John Calvin, in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, essentially says that for the substance of them, um, the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant are one. Hmm. They're okay. outwardly administered differently, to be sure. Mm-hmm. They're at different points in history, but the inner substance of what's going on with Abraham and the Abrahamic people uh, is the same as the new covenant. Yeah. You know, I think we need to take a short break here. I see the time is going fast. Maybe when we come back, we can talk a little bit about how to read the Bible, because that's what's coming out here. Um you know how do you how do you interpret how do you what's the basic um, understanding that I bring to the Bible guidelines on how to read it uh, today we're talking about the covenant and covenant theology on the phone with me is Dr. Kevin Sherritt stay with us we'll be right back We'll be right back with our program in just a minute. 
Now a reminder that your gifts to this ministry enable us to bring you thoughtful, Christ-centered programming 24 hours a day. Would you prayerfully consider helping us with a tax-deductible gift this month? Redeemer Broadcasting is a 501c3 not-for-profit broadcast ministry. We're entirely listener-supported and have no advertisements. If you would like to help support us this month, and perhaps in the future, our mailing address is Redeemer Broadcasting, Post Office Box 1520, Olive Bridge, New York, 12461. Once again, Redeemer Broadcasting, Post Office Box 1520, Olive Bridge, New York, 12461. Stay with us now for the second half of our program. And welcome back. You're tuned to A Plain Answer right here at Redeemer Broadcasting. Today we're talking about the covenant. And uh, before the break, we mentioned that we should probably talk a little bit about how to read the Bible. So, Kevin, maybe you can help us on that. I think this concept of the covenant and the notion of what what has been called covenant theology is uniquely helpful right here at this point, uh, because I do think the concept of the covenant and the string of covenants God makes in the Old Testament, uh, culminating in the new covenant in Jesus Christ, is a uniquely helpful paradigm or prism or model to help us read the scriptures as one book, not as two books or two radically different books or uh, or a book sort of sliced into pieces and then patched together, but as one unfolding organic book, the notion of the covenant and the covenant's plural unfolding, uh, I think, is uniquely helpful. So we read the Bible, we see that God made a covenant with, with Adam, that Adam breaks that covenant, that God immediately establishes a promise in the garden of a Redeemer, and thus a graciously established covenant. He preserves the created order with Noah, uh, so that his covenant purposes can go forward. And then he calls Abraham, and, and there for the first time makes what we might call a redemptive covenant. And, and maybe this is a good point to just stop for a second and say, when we're using the word covenant here, we're not talking simply about agreements, say, between David and Jonathan or contracts between men, or various agreements between nations, even though those might be called contractual or legal or even covenantal. Mm -hmm. Here we mean by covenant, sovereignly administered relationship by the God of Israel, the the one true creator God, with his people. O. Palmer Robertson is a a wonderful scholar, Old Testament scholar, has written an excellent book that I would recommend to anyone who's interested in this. It's a very accessible book. It's called The Christ of the Covenants. And Palmer Robertson, in that book, defines a covenant as a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. And you see that particularly come to the fore with Abraham. So that when we talk about a covenant here, we're talking about a bond between God and his people. But it's a bond that must be sealed in blood, mm. right? Because the people need redemption, right? Because the people are, are covenant breakers, they're sinners. And that bond is not, a, is not a bilateral agreement. It's sovereignly administered by God. Well, that's what was coming out as you were talking here. That is that this whole relationship, the impetus, comes from God himself. In that sense, right. it's kind of one-sided. He, he kicks it off. He sustains it. He, he enables 
us as covenant keepers to love him and obey him. Amen. And so in that sense, the covenant highlights the graciousness of God and the yeah. free grace of salvation. Mm-hmm. But, back, but back to what we were, were discussing, if we start with you know, Adam and, then, and uh, the promise and then Noah and then Abraham, um, we realize we're reading one unfolding story. When we get yeah. from Abraham to Moses, uh, we don't have a different covenant, right? We have a covenant. When God makes the covenant with Israel at Sinai and gives them the law, um, that covenant of the law is there uh, underneath and organically related to the Abrahamic covenant to push the story forward. It's not like okay. God gave up on the Abrahamic covenant and established something brand new. What's interesting is that in Exodus, when the people are groaning out in slavery, and, and God is coming down to visit them and to deliver them, the text tells us, for example, in Exodus 2, that God heard their groaning and that God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's helpful. And that is, uh, what comes out here is that this is in, con- you know, we're talking about how to read the Bible. And so this is in contrast to a, a view that would say there's totally different eras, different time periods, and God acts one way in one time period and another right. way in another. Okay. That's right. And you end up, it's very difficult to read the Bible as one book one unfolding, organically united book. And so right. the, the Mosaic Covenant is, is God effecting deliverance and bringing Israel into the land of promise in fulfillment of the covenant promise to Abraham, respecting mm-hmm. the possession of the land, right? And, and yeah. when you get to the Davidic Covenant, it's, it, you know, the text says that it's the God who brought Israel out of Egypt who's making that covenant. And then David tells Solomon, make sure that the kings, you know, keep the law of God. So the Davidic covenant is connected to the Mosaic covenant, which is connected to the Abrahamic covenant. Mm -hmm. When you get to the new covenant in Christ, and I'm condensing and simplifying this, but I think we can see it. When you get to the new covenant in Christ, he is very clearly in the gospel narratives, the Davidic king, the everlasting Davidic monarch. Uh, But he is also... The, the, the new Israel, right? The, he's, he is the one who is faithful in the wilderness where Israel was faithless. And uh, he is also uh, the, the seed of Abraham. He is the second Adam, Paul says. So he gathers up this whole Old Testament covenant history, and he reestablishes it himself as the new covenant. So the new covenant is not totally new. It's the fulfillment of all these covenant arrangements going down through Old Testament history. Mm -hmm. And this is very important for Christians because, as we've already said earlier, we are the seed of Abraham and Jesus Christ. So in that sense, Uh uh, we are the descendants of the Abrahamic promises. But even when it comes to the law, even though we are not under the law, as a covenant of works, meaning if we obey the law, we'll go to heaven. If we don't, we'll, we'll, we'll be condemned. We're not under the law that way. Nevertheless, Jeremiah says, and Hebrews 8 picks this up, this is the new covenant. This is new covenant. I will take my law and I will write it in their minds oh, yeah. and I will place it on their hearts. So even the law finds itself fulfilled in the Christian life in the new covenant. And mm. we are kings with Christ, so we participate in his Davidic monarchic reign. So when you start to see this, you realize that this notion of covenant is not just an abstraction, just a, just a, a clever idea. It's a, it's a structuring device to enable you to follow the biblical story. Mm. Talk a little bit about us being basically related to Abraham, and uh, can you cover how can that be seen that we are, at least most of us anyway, are, are not of Jewish descent, you know, physically, 
Right. How does that work out uh, in in the covenant story? Well, what's interesting is that the promise to Abraham when he's first called in Genesis 12 entails that he and his seed would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Mm-hmm. So from the very beginning, the Abrahamic covenant, uh, even before Israel's formed as a nation, embraces, uh, gathers up in its purview the nations, uh, and thus the Gentiles, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, to be recipients of the Abrahamic blessing. Now, this narrows down as, you know, God, you know, chooses Isaac and not Ishmael and Jacob and not Esau. The covenant promise sort of narrows down until you get to Israel. But even within Israel, in the, especially in the Psalms and the prophets, you can see that God intends to bring the light and the blessing that he has placed on Israel as his elect nation to all the ends of the earth. Mm-hmm. And that finally occurs when Jesus Christ comes forth, and Paul says that Jesus is the seed of Abraham. The promise to the seed of Abraham is not in any primary or fundamental way a promise to the ethnically Jewish people. Mm-hmm. It's a promise to Jesus Christ, Paul says. He is the seed, and then believers in both Testaments are, are the seed of Abraham, small s. Christ is the seed, big S, right. in Christ. So who is the seed of Abraham? Jesus Christ and the faithful of both covenant, covenant periods are the seed, mm-hmm. and that thus includes the embracing of Gentiles in the Abrahamic covenant, which is not a novelty. It's envisioned in the very call of Abraham in Genesis 12. Mm. That, is, uh, that is just precious. I find that precious. I recall that one of the epistle writers uh, talks about, quote, the Israel of God. Do you remember that quotation? Yes. What is he talking about? In Galatians about six. Well, that's it's 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 disputed, but I think Paul there is speaking of the church, the and church. he calls the church the Israel of God. Mm-hmm. And uh, and but but you see that also in First Peter one and James one that the church is spoken of as the twelve tribes. Right. Uh, the church the church throughout the New Testament gets the the titles and the the, the privileges uh, that are bestowed upon Israel in the old covenant. So in mm-hmm. that sense, the church in the New Testament which, of course, has a, a Jewish root and a, and a, and a Jewish um, substructure that must always be honored and cherished, uh, but includes the, the grafting in of Gentiles. That body of people is the Israel of God. So, as a believing Gentile, then, I'm, I'm grafted in to this um, Abrahamic root, essentially. Exactly. That's why the covenant is so important, right? Paul, mm. for example, you, you're, you just... Uh, cited uh, Romans chapter 11, where Paul talks okay. about the, the, the olive tree. Oh, yeah, there's, one, right. there's one olive tree. That's an interesting uh, passage on the question of co- organic continuity. Paul sees in the history of Israel and in the history of the church where Gentiles are grafted in, he sees one olive tree. There's not two olive trees. There's not an olive tree for Israel and an right. olive tree for Gentiles, an olive tree for you know, Abraham and then an olive tree for mothers. There's one olive tree for Paul. Mm-hmm. And some branches, unbelieving Jews, are cut off, though Paul has hope that they'll be restored. Sure. And other wild branches, us Gentiles, who are by nature foreign to Israel, are grafted into that tree. And that's a marvelous picture of the organic unity of the covenants and why covenant theology is so important, because mm-hmm. it means the New Testament church is actually rooted and grounded in Israel's life and history. Paul puts this richly in Ephesians 2, where he says you used to be 
you know, aliens from God and, and uh, strangers, he says, to the mm-hmm. covenants of, of the promise. He says, but now you're, you've been brought near and you are joint heirs, fellow citizens of the, of the commonwealth of Israel. Mm. And so we've been yeah. grafted into that heritage, and that's another way of putting the fact that New Testament Christians partake of the same covenantal order that Israel partook of throughout her history. Mm-hmm. We do so in Jesus Christ, who is the second Adam, the seed of Abraham, the, the greater Moses, the faithful Israel, and the Davidic king. And in him, we partake of that Isra- Israelite uh, covenantal uh, root. Yeah. Well, this is rich today. It's, um, the things that keep coming to my mind is this thing of promise, uh, relationship from God towards us, and uh, it really seems this is one of the more precious truths of Scripture, and it's like overarching. It's, uh, it helps us understand the heart of God. Yeah, I think that I do think that's true. There are other, you know, dominant themes to be sure. The kingdom of God, mm-hmm. you know, might might vie for its place as an organizing theme. But kingdom and covenant are profoundly inter interrelated ideas. Right. Remember that at the at the very end of his life, our Lord, on the night he was betrayed, you know, he institutes and establishes the new covenant. This mm-hmm. is the new covenant in my blood. It's clear that he's gathering up you know, the Passover meal and the Exodus tradition, and he's establishing. So this notion of the new covenant being a, you know, a reestablishment of the covenant in the blood of Jesus, not something brand new, clearly not brand new from from all we've said so far today, but new in the sense that it is established now in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and given a permanent uh, form, Mm -hmm. an, an eternal force, it's, it's an extraordinarily rich way of understanding the scriptures. I agree with you. That's great. Um, is it possible for, let me use a, another buzz phrase here, but is it possible for non-elect to have some kind of a mm, outward covenantal obligation before God and yet to fall away from that covenant? Yes, the short answer is yes. <laughs> that, the, the, the background to that, though, is we, we have to talk about when we talk about the covenant, we're talking about a relationship, we, we're talking about all the stuff we've said so far, but it is important to point out that covenants are administered. Uh, they have an outward form. For example, mm-hmm. in the Abrahamic covenant, it was circumcision was the sign of the covenant. In the Mosaic covenant, there were sacrifices and promises and rituals. Um, the new covenant is administered differently. We have baptism and the Lord's Supper. The fact that the administration, the outward administration of the covenants is different uh, does not mean that the inner substance of the covenant is being radically changed. The gotcha. covenant is the same. And so in every administration, let's just say uh, uh, under the law, under the Mosaic administration of the covenant, uh, there were clearly Israelite unbelievers who, who didn't believe and never believed, right. but they were placed under obligation by virtue of being circumcised, mm-hmm. right, and, and being outwardly in relationship with God. Uh, they are, if you will, uh, then condemned as covenant breakers when they turn their backs on the Lord and disobey His law, and eventually, you know, uh, large portions of the nation are cut off, and the nation as a whole is sent mm-hmm. into exile. So, yes, right. same thing in the church and in, in the new covenant. A person baptized into the Christian church is outwardly in the covenant, sure. and they they only have two choices in life: they can be a covenant keeper in Jesus Christ, or they can be a covenant breaker. 
So, yes, the covenant is an outward, visible reality. It's there in space and time and in history that includes people who are not true believers. I'm glad you mentioned that, because I I think it helps unlock some of the concerns, seeming uh, difficulty in Scripture, where it looks like someone is, quote-unquote, losing their salvation, when in fact what they're doing is being unfaithful to God's covenant and never had a relationship in their heart with the Lord Jesus to begin with. Yes, that's a complex matter. There's a sense in which all professing believers, all baptized believers in the Church are in in relationship, in quotes, to God. Yes. But it's an outward, legal, covenantal sort of an arrangement. Right. If the person eventually abandons that, 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 we would say that that, that they never had a truly uh, regenerate conversion. But th- that really takes us into another subject. That's another discussion yeah. for another day. But that's for those of us who are saved, who love the Lord Jesus, who the Bible says are the elect of God, this understanding brings richness and fullness and depth. I think it just opens up the Scriptures in a, in a wonderful way. It, it, you know, uh, another point here, Dan, is if we ask ourselves, what are we doing when we gather for worship on the Lord's Day? I think a very legitimate answer is we are renewing our covenant with God. Mm. And God is renewing covenant with us. That's why he speaks his word to us. He cleanses us from our sins, and then he nourishes us with um, his body and blood in the Lord's Supper, uh, which is essentially a meal of covenant renewal. And so if if you excise this concept of covenant from your worship, then it becomes difficult to ask what's, go- what's going on when we worship. You could say, well, we're just gathering to praise God. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that worship in Scripture is more than simply, it includes that. That's a glorious central element. But it isn't just that. Nor mm-hmm. is it just praising God and hearing His Word. Nor is it just praising God and hearing His Word and having fellowship. We have to ask ourselves, what are we doing? Right. And, and how is it being done and why are we doing it? Mm-hmm. And I think the richest answer to that is when the Church gathers for corporate worship, It is being cleansed and purified and instructed and nourished by her Lord as it worships Him, as it confesses the faith, and and sent back out into the world, renewed and strengthened in the new covenant. You know, Kevin, I just looked at the clock, and uh, that will be the uh, closing statement right there. It really summarizes everything. Uh, Today we've been talking about the covenant here at Redeemer Broadcasting. This program is a plain answer. Uh, Our guest today is Dr. Kevin Sherritt pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Tennessee. We would invite you to visit our website where this broadcast is stored up on the website as a podcast. We're at RedeemerBroadcasting.org. I'm Dan Elmendorf. We would invite you to join us next week at this same time for another edition of A Plain Answer.